And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Shortly after I began following Christ as an adult, back in 1974, my wife's family came to me with a request to investigate a particular group that denied that Jesus was God in human flesh and who tried to say that the, uh, the early church had fallen into a great apostasy. It was a group at that time, they were called the Way International. I'm not certain what they go by today. But the idea here was that um, uh, after the death of the apostles, the church went into very steep decline. And what happens afterwards is hard to say. Uh, Usually what happens is it goes underground and pops up again around the Reformation era. But this particular group uh, denied that uh, uh, the divinity of Christ, and so they didn't feel especially warm towards the uh, the magisterial reformers either. Jehovah's Witnesses have a similar narrative. Mormons have a similar narrative. The key to it is the great apostasy. For those of us who have spent any time at all <laughs> trying to read from the New Testament through the apostolic fathers to the apologists, <laughs> we don't see it. It's not there. It's 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 a it's a fallacious n- narrative. But a man who the man who's done the best popular storytelling on this is Rod Bennett. Rod is a former editor of Wonder Magazine, a popular Christian media journal, and his writings uh, have appeared in other national publications as well. Uh, Catholic Exchange, our Sunday visitor. Rod has been on uh, Journey Home with Marcus Grodi. He's been on uh, Bookmark with Doug Keck. His first book, Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her Own Words, is a, a, an outstanding book published by Ignatius Press. I've had it for years. And uh, Rod is a convert from the Southern Baptist faith, joined the Catholic Church in 1996. And he has written The Apostasy That Wasn't, The Extraordinary Story of the Unbreakable Early Church. Rod, great to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here, Al. I uh, hadn't, hadn't spoke with you in quite a while. It's good to reconnect. I was just thinking the same thing. And by the way, I do love your writing. I, I I don't think I've told you that before, but I had a fun time with this book. I'm and, glad to hear it. Yeah, I actually listened to it uh, through Kindle, uh, which is not the best way to listen to any book, but it's it's uh, still very very enjoyable. Uh, this took this must have taken you quite a, a while to tell this story because you show a real personal familiarity. With the uh, with the fathers, with the with the dramatic details of the Arian controversy, um, Athanasius, uh, the the Christianizing of the Roman Empire, the fighting back of the pagans. Where where does the idea of a great apostasy begin? Where do the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Way International, certain Protestant groups, where do they come up with the idea? that it's even plausible that there was a great falling away after the uh, apostles. Well, if you think about it, Al, if you, uh, if you find that the religious ideas that you're committed to, whatever, wherever you happen to get them from, whatever group you belong to or whatever, if you find that uh, your denomination started 50 years ago, 100 years ago, sometimes if you're really lucky, 500 years ago. <laughs> right. But you find that there is a long period when Christians didn't teach that. In other words, the teachings of your church are hard to find any time before that. And that uh, there was a long period during which uh, people didn't, didn't say what your group says today. 
uh, well, I mean, you, you, you've got to account for this somehow. Mm-hmm. And, and most mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, like to believe that what they've been taught or are teaching uh, comes from the Bible or from the apostles in, in the early days, then just those facts alone are enough to, uh, uh, to create in your mind some sense that everything started out all right and went off the rails at some point. And then had to be God had to sort of reboot the whole thing again by means of some modern reformer or a prophet or uh, some other figure. Sure. Fortunately, you get to pick which, <laughs> and uh, uh, because there's an awful lot of different ones on the market. Yeah. Uh, the key insight for me that uh, uh, that led me to start dealing with all of this was that even though I, it was easy for me as an evangelical Christian to dismiss some of the kookier versions of the idea. Uh, I found that even though I, I wouldn't have used the terms great apostasy, uh, and I might have wanted to finesse it a bit and say that the church went underground or whatever, mm-hmm. nevertheless, I realized one day that I essentially believed the same thing, mm-hmm. or did at the time, that uh, uh, that the early church was corrupted and turned aside so badly that uh, that God had to uh, had to have a fresh start at some point, which I would have, of course identified with the Protestant reformers of the 16th century, although uh, I'd read enough of their writings to be a little uncomfortable with them, too. So. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's just inherent in the idea that if you find that you're in a religious minority and that the uh, great bulk of Christians in the world think differently than you do, then you've got to account for this somehow, and uh, the great apostasy comes pretty quickly to mind. Yeah. Now, the... Uh when when did Ignatius of Antioch's letters become commonly known? How early back, when did we begin to work those? Because in the 19th century, I know there was a recovery of some of them anyways. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's interesting you should bring that up. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who is somebody that I really admire, uh, uh, one of his arguments, he was a disbeliever in the divinity of Christ. Right. He believed in some sort of apostasy theory, and that very early on in the history of the Church, uh, a false idea, a false deification of the prophet Jesus took place and led to modern Trinitarian ideas. Uh, He uh, says in a famous passage, I think it's one of his letters to John Adams, he says that the first person to attribute divinity to Jesus was Justin Martyr. And uh, yeah. the letters of just the apology of Justin Martyr and his writings, most of them date from around 150 A.D. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first read that, I went, "Well, that's wrong. That's completely off base." Right. Uh, uh, you know, but keep in mind, in Jefferson's day, it was taken pretty much for granted that uh, uh, that the uh, that. Uh, the Gospel of John was written in the second or third century, and that uh, these were very common ideas in his day. Mm-hmm. And those letters that you've mentioned of Ignatius of Antioch, in which, by the way, the divinity of Christ couldn't be much, couldn't be any clearer than right. it is. At one point, he speaks about uh, the the blood of God shed <laughs> right, on the cross. Right. I mean, it's hard to be any clearer than that. Yep. Uh, uh, and they were written about 107 A.D., those letters. So, But those hadn't yet been rediscovered in the 18th century when Jefferson wrote. So, uh, you know, I, I don't give Jefferson a free pass. There's past things he should have known about. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, but at the same time, it was a bit more plausible in those days than right. it is now. I mean, because with the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, you've got pretty much uh, uh, an unbroken 
uh, you know, passing of the baton between the uh, generation of the apostles and those who succeeded them and those who succeeded them. Exactly right. Exactly right. They uh, uh, and and again those. Letters of Ignatius were very uh, instrumental in my own conversion to the Catholic faith from uh, from evangelical Christianity. Tell us a little bit about your your uh, upbringing and and what eventually led you uh, to see in the the Catholic Church the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. Well, I had for the most part good experiences in evangelical Christianity. In fact, I wouldn't be here today probably if I hadn't. Uh, been witnessed to by various interesting and, and spirit-filled characters through the years when I uh, uh, was uh, still an evangelical. Mm-hmm. So I uh, definitely wouldn't say a word against any of them. Sure. But uh, uh, one thing that I had that uh, was troublesome was a, a, I had a, a bit of a historical itch. I, had, I was a bookworm and was interested in history. And uh, it, early on, I think, I was troubled a little bit by the fact that uh, evangelical Christianity had what seemed to be a bit of a conspiracy theory for its history. And this idea that, uh, that nefarious people came along after the apostles left the earth and, uh, and subverted and undermined the original faith and uh, substituted some sort of changeling in the cradle. And uh, that, uh, that idea was troublesome to me. So that really set me up for uh, uh, an inquiry later on into the writings of these early fathers, which really was the beginning of the end for me as a Protestant. Rod, hold it there. We'll come back continue the conversation. Rod Bennett, my guest, the apostasy that wasn't the extraordinary story of the unbreakable early church. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Rod Bennett, is narrating the drama of the early church fight to preserve uh, Christian orthodoxy, talking about his own encounter with these truths of history. So you, uh, you had a historical itch uh, as an evangelical, and that uh, drove you to begin reading uh, in the early church. When was the first time it dawned on you that there was uh, this kind of unbroken continuity between the apostles and the generation that followed and the generation that followed them? Well, it's, it's interesting. You, uh, uh, as an evangelical Christian, you, you often are presented with the idea that there's a kind of a dark continent of uh, a blank space on the map in between the close of the New Testament right. and later history. Uh, we, uh, you know, most evangelicalism has as its goal the idea of putting things back to the way they were in the early church. Kind of uh, primitivism, I think, is what people often call that. Yeah, I think that's the the technical term. The idea that, uh, that, well, I mean, it's implied by the idea that all of these barnacles attach themselves to the faith through the centuries, uh, that you want to go back to the pristine early state and do things just the way they were done in Bible days. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, if you... Very helpful to maintaining that idea, though, is the the if you don't scratch around too closely in the historical records, because the minute that I discovered that there were such records, that there was no gap or uh, blank spot on the map there, but that we have writings that have survived from people who knew the apostles, who were converted by Peter or John or something like that, yep. and that there are thousands of pages. It's not skimpy. It's not some 
a few lines in an archaeological museum. There are many hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation about what the early church was like and what these uh, the second generation uh, witnesses mm-hmm. uh, believed about the faith and how wh- how their church services were done and all sorts of other uh, uncomfortable things. <laughs> so uh, if you go back and start looking at all of that, uh, as I did, you encounter something else uh, very awful from from the from the Protestant perspective too, and that is that these writings are all full of stuff that isn't supposed to be there, that we believed uh, arose in the Middle Ages or something. Right. You know, and that is high honors paid to the Virgin Mary or the idea of baptismal regeneration or confessions to a priest mm-hmm. or purgatory or any of these other things. The centrality you know, of the Eucharist, for heaven's sake. Absolutely, yeah. yes, absolutely. And, and very, very strong language about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah. These, things, uh, uh, these things are all there in these early writings. And, of course, if... If you believed first that the writings didn't exist, and then when you began to examine them, that uh, you find that they're full of things that aren't supposed to exist for another thousand years, then you've got a real problem on your hands as a uh, as a Protestant, or at least a naive Protestant as I was, who uh, who had never heard of any of this, and it uh, it caused caused an earthquake. How long did it take you, once having seen this historical problem? Uh, how long did it take you to, to eventually come into full communion? Well, it's interesting that you, that you should mention that. My wife was a little quicker to come than I was. Huh. She was ready to go five years probably <laughs> before really? I was. Huh. But I put up a bit more of a fight. I, I wriggled on the hook a little more. <laughs> and we, we fooled around with uh, uh, with various halfway houses, uh, Anglicanism mm-hmm. and some, some other things like that. And God bless all those people. Sure. No, no, sure. uh, no slight implied, but... For us, that's what it was. At least in my case, that's what it was. It was a sort of more or less conscious halfway house for somebody who was a little bit uh, scared of uh, the great beast sitting on the seven hills. You know? yeah, that's right. That's right. But, <laughs> uh, you do a wonderful job dealing with Constantine, uh, a, a, one of these titanic figures in world history and certainly in church history. The uh, corruption of the church uh, under Constantine is a common theme in all of these stories of the great apostasy. Um, the, the, the early church was the church of persecution. Uh, so you can, in some of these narratives, the church persists for a while after the death of the apostles, but it's persecuted, but it keeps its original purity and pristineness. But then all of a sudden, Constantine comes along and um, uh, eventually makes the church, uh, favors the church. And in doing so, he corrupts it. Ah, even worse, he calls a church council and imposes the divinity of Christ on uh, on the uh, Christian church. Who was Constantine? What did he do? And why is that narrative so false well it's it's a very popular narrative because uh it, that period really does represent uh, a watershed moment in the life of the church mm-hmm. when you, you you essentially i mean the dark reading that's usually given to it is as you spelled out there that constantine uh, allowed himself to be converted in 313 ad he made he picked out his favorite version of christianity and sponsored it to the exclusion of all others and that he made that version of Christianity, the Catholic version, into uh, the state religion of the Roman Empire, 
this brought in a vast flood of uh, of half converted pagans who came in mainly to gain social advantages uh, in the, on the political scene, and uh, they these people brought in all sorts of souvenirs from their paganism, all things like statues in the churches and all the other things that are supposed to be the distinctives that are quasi-pagan, as we see in uh, the Catholic Church these days. Well, the reason that people commonly go to this spot, again, if you're searching for a point in which things went off the rails, uh, it's a convenient spot to look at, because this this, this was really a change in the Church's uh, uh, life. Mm-hmm. It was a watershed moment, in some ways a coming of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a lot of that has been very misunderstood and overblown. For instance, uh, the idea that the church of the first, second, third centuries was pure, uh, this pure persecuted band of uh, New Testament believers meeting in homes with no ritual, no uh, officers, uh, just this uh, very uh, loosey-goosey kind of association as we enjoyed as evangelicals, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the idea that this early church in these centuries was huddled in the catacombs until Constantine came along, and uh, that changed everything, is simply historically false. That's right. The That's right. Uh, uh, the church hadn't been in the catacombs for many decades uh, before the conversion of Constantine. In fact, during the, the second century A.D., the, that is the, the years one that begin with 100, and also the third century, even though there were sporadic persecutions, the church was growing enormously, mm-hmm. and by the end of the 200s A.D., uh, had become such a large, important minority in the Roman uh, society that there were very big... Uh, Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that there were enormous golden church buildings that uh, that were, if anything, envied by the emperors. Yes. And and that uh, and this is in the 200s A.D., 50 years or more before uh, before Constantine even became a Christian. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, they were a recognized part of Roman society, and also they weren't very pure either. Well, <laughs> in fact, not much more pure than, than any other uh, era of Christianity. Right. right. The, the, the records show, well, uh, the, the scholar Origen, who, who wrote about the year 250, uh, tells us, straight up, that he thought the church was whoring in his era. Yeah. Yeah. He, believed, he went down a long catalog of sins and things that were going on. He thought, and he pined for the days of the early church, which is funny because we think of Origen himself as the early church. <laughs> right. But he was pining for the days of the early church when the church was pure and, and uh, you, you, uh, New Testament believers, et cetera, et cetera. You would think he never read First Corinthians then. So. That's right, and and that, and that ultimately gives the lie to the whole myth that uh, uh, that a perfectly pure early church was put off the rails in in the early three hundreds, because the perfectly pure early church doesn't even appear in the pages of the New Testament itself. Right. It doesn't exist there, right? That's that's right. So, uh, but it does. This idea does exist as a powerful motivation. In fact, in some ways, a good motivation. You know, we call it uh, primitivism or whatever, but the the desire to reform and uh, conform the mm-hmm. church's practice to her uh, to her belief right. is a good one. It is. It's one that that we all uh, ought to strive after and seek for. Sure. Uh, but if it becomes a kind of a morbid infantilism, in other words, a kind of a, a nostalgia for a, a, a golden age that never really was, then it can do harm. 
and and it has done harm in this case. Well, let me ask you, was Constantine an authentic Christian? If so, why did he wait to be baptized? That's an interesting point, too. Uh, a lot of people uh, have heard that Constantine was not baptized until his deathbed, and that is true. Uh, you know, the Eastern churches have actually canonized uh, Constantine. Yeah, He's right. a saint in the East. Uh, our church has been a little more circumspect on that point. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, our church has always had what up until recently was the common sense understanding of what Constantine's life was like. He was a he didn't rise to the level of heroic sanctity, but he was a man who definitely was converted to Catholic Christianity. Mm -hmm. However, an however imperfect he may have been as a individual Christian. Uh, there's there's funny accounts of uh, of Constantine's uh, personal behavior. They, uh, Eusebius, I think, tells us that he was so enthusiastic in his new convert zeal that he uh, he wandered around his own palace looking for people to preach to, and it, uh, the servants <laughs> got tired of it after a while and complained. So, <laughs> but there's there's more uh, concrete evidence too. He immediately began to change laws outlawed some of the more bar barbaric things that happened in the gladiatorial games, mm -hmm. uh, outlawed crucifixion as a uh, form of capital punishment right away, uh, long list of, of reforms and changes that Constantine made almost from day one. Now, the, the question is sometimes raised, uh, oh, sorry, before I lose your, the, the other thing you asked me, he, he was bat yes, it's true that he wasn't baptized until his deathbed, but actually this was a fairly minor a common minor abuse in those days. There were uh, such emphasis was placed on the catechumenate, and there were so many people who were catechumens, and uh, during times of persecution, it had been uh, made clear that if you had not yet been baptized, if your journey to baptism, which sometimes took two years or more in the in the quickest circumstances, if it was interrupted somehow during the course of your life by death, persecution that you would go to heaven, mm. even without water baptism. Okay. That, there, that, that the catechumens were fully members of the church. Was he afraid of post-baptismal sin? That, that's the abuse part of it. Yeah. That, that, you, you, that the desire arose to maybe remain a catechumen all your life. Yeah. Hold it there, Rod. We'll come back, continue conversation, talking about the early church and the common uh, false story that uh, the early church fell uh, away after the death of the apostles or was corrupted at the time of Constantine. There are other forms of it, too. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Rod Bennett. The Apostasy That Wasn't, The Extraordinary Story of the Unbreakable Early Church. New book published by Catholic Answers, which I want to strongly recommend. Uh, I've enjoyed it uh, immensely, and it's, it's, a, uh, I, it's a much richer narrative than you get in your normal church history books. Uh, you actually begin to feel you know the characters, like Athanasius and Constantine. Even Diocletian, you have some clever things to say <laughs> about him, the, the uh, persecutor. Uh, did Constantine uh, call the Council of Nicaea because he wanted to impose his form of Catholic Christianity? Uh, no, but the, he did he did uh, call the council. Mm -hmm. Impose is the wrong word. Mm -hmm. Constantine certainly did call the council. 
because the latest heresy that was troubling the Catholic Church in those days, the heresy of Arius, from which we get the term Arianism, not to be confused with the uh, much later white supremacy theory associated with Adolf Hitler. But uh, uh, there was a heresy abroad in those days that was disturbing the peace of the Church. Constantine, uh, it is absolutely true that Constantine... Uh, adopted Christianity uh, and sponsored Christianity uh, in his empire because he thought it was healthy for the empire and 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 good for Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that he thought it that it would be good is to have one uh, sensible, revealed truth uh, of religion that the people could rally around, and therefore to see uh, uh, dissension and trouble within the church itself was uh, troubling to him, as of course it is to. Uh, Two Christians. Sure. So uh, Constantine called for a council, but it's interesting that Constantine uh, didn't say how the matter was to be resolved. In other words, often you're, you hear that he sponsored uh, his favorite version. In reality, he simply called the bishops together and he said, parse this out, figure out what the right answer is, because we need, uh, we need to settle it. And, of course, the, uh, the church responded uh, not so much because Constantine called for it. They knew that the problem needed to be solved, too. But they also accepted the idea that the church, as St. Paul teaches, has a responsibility to, uh, to obey the, uh, the rulers, the, our secular rulers, yeah. even, whenever you can. Sure. And this was a matter that, uh, that they agreed needed to be settled. Were many of the bishops who arrived for the council themselves former uh, victims of persecution? Absolutely, yes. One of the richest things about that story, and, and one of the things that most gives the lie to the idea that Constantine put some over, something over <laughs> on the world here, right. is the idea that, uh, uh, that these guys could be shaking in their boots in front of the emperor. When uh, they'd already endured uh, the hot irons of persecution. Absolutely. The worst of the Roman persecutions happened in the lives of this generation. And Eusebius, the historian, tells us that the bishops who met at Nicaea looked like an assembled army of martyrs. There were uh, eyes poked out, uh, limbs torn off, all of the other things that had happened to these confessors during uh, uh, during the last great persecution, that of Diocletian in 303. All of these things were still very apparent on the physical bodies of the delegates assembled. So the idea that the, that the emperor dictated the results at Nicaea is ridiculous because he, the emperors had been trying to dictate results for centuries, and the bishops had heroically resisted, uh, you know, in spite of anything, everything that torture and, and the rest of it could do. Mm-hmm. So the idea that these guys suddenly just uh, changed their minds and, and uh, let the emperor rule the church is, uh, comes from a not very clear idea of what the times were really like. Why didn't the Council of Nicaea, um, while doctrinally it settled uh, the question of Christ's divinity or the Son's relationship to the Father, why didn't it sociologically settle it? Because there was still a lot of fighting over it. And, of course, the great story of Athanasius against the world follows the Council of Nicaea. So tell us why uh, was there still dissent? I'd like to state your question just a little bit differently. Please, go ahead. The, the council didn't 
settle the divinity of Christ. There had never been any question about the divinity yes, of Christ very from good. day one. Very good. The uh, the the issue was how was how what was the relationship between the divine Son of God and the divine Father of the universe, That's the right. Son's Father. In other words, what why don't we have two gods here? That's right. This was the question that uh, Arius raised. Mm-hmm. Arius tried to solve the problem of the divinity of Christ in relationship to God's, the Father's divinity. He tried to resolve that problem with a faulty answer. And his faulty answer made the sought to save strict numerical oneness in God by means of a trick. In other words, Jesus is not really God in the same sense that his Father is God. Right. Right. But he's more like a sort of a Xerox copy of God mm-hmm. that God made. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what was attacked was not the divinity of Christ, but the eternal sonship of Christ, the idea that he'd been God from the beginning and wasn't a created being. Right. Anyway, we could, that, we, could, we could talk about that deeply, but that's not really quite what we're, what we're doing here. You asked why the council, which was overwhelming, Right. One, one of the more absurd things in Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code book, which, by the way, is another example of a very typical Protestant uh, great apostasy theory, mm-hmm. even though Dan Brown gets more Protestant than even the Protestants. He protests the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but he, he's once again, he's uh, enacting the old story of, well, the church started off all right but went off the rails. Um, one of the most absurd things in that is Dan Brown claims that the divinity of Christ itself was settled at Nicaea by a relatively close vote, as he puts it. Right, right. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, you, you wonder, not just which book was he getting this out of, but had he even bothered to look he, at a book? He even checked it out. Uh, right, because... Well, go ahead, you have the numbers there. What, what was yeah, the there, were three, uh, there were at least 300 bishops at uh, Nicaea of which at the very outside there were about 22 who were willing to question not the divinity of Christ. Keep in mind, there was nobody at Nicaea teaching what Dan Brown believes, mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, that Jesus was just a, a wise man or a sage, a merely human prophet. That there was no humanitarian party at Nicaea. Right. The, uh, the Arians loudly affirmed the divinity of Christ, but on their own terms, the way they defined it. But he definitely was a supernatural being in their eyes. They never denied the virgin birth, the resurrection, any of the other things like that. Uh, uh, but the vote that came out at the end, at the very most, there were about 22 bishops. And some, many of the other accounts say many less than that. But at the end of the council, only two of the bishops held out for the system of Arius. Only two. Two okay. out of 312 or something like that. <laughs> so a tiny, tiny number of people uh, were, were willing to, uh, uh, to rock the boat on this. So it was an overwhelming majority that uh, uh, voted in favor of the traditional Christian view that goes all the way back to Ignatius and uh, and uh, Justin and the other early earliest apostolic fathers, that Christ is fully God. And uh, uh, those who were willing even to question it was a very small minority at Nicaea. Mm-hmm. Why didn't that then settle the matter uh, for the entire empire? Well, the reason is that uh, when Christianity came to have such an important role in society as it did 
especially when Constantine uh, began to approve of it and point point at it as the way to go for his empire. Uh, when that happened, there were forces in the empire who didn't trust the idea of giving the Catholic Church so much power. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they didn't like to see what they were seeing, and that is Constantine uh, bowing, as he did bow, to the judgment of the Catholic bishops on one issue after another. Uh, I, I used a metaphor at one point in the book. I said that for, for the unbelievers in the empire, uh, watching Constantine submit to the authority of the assembled fathers at Nicaea must have been like uh, uh, watching your father converted to some strange cult and then immediately start signing his property over to the chief gurus. <laughs> and uh, so there was resistance. There were people who who were scared of what was going on, people who hadn't yet converted or hadn't fully converted, and they wanted a Christianity that was less uh, large and in charge. In other words, they wanted a Christianity that could be used to unite people who had no intention of converting to an orthodox form of Christianity. So uh, Arianism offered that opportunity. Uh, After all, Arianism, in a sense, since it denies that that Christ is an eternal God, uh, then it could put itself forward as uh, a chance to continue worshiping a creature rather than the Creator, Mm -hmm. as paganism had done since time immemorial. In other words, Arianism can be interpreted in such a way that a pagan can can look at Christ in the same way that a pagan looked at Apollo or uh, Hercules or one of the other demigods of Roman mythology as a sort of a son of God, so to speak, a son of Zeus, and uh, uh, and interpret the whole thing, still call himself a Christian, interpret the whole thing in, in pagan terms. Mm-hmm. So Arianism was sponsored in the the age, not a, not by Constantine, but in the age of Constantine, there were people sponsoring the Arian heresy and who continued to sponsor it for the next hundred years who were doing it as a way to subvert the power of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pagans didn't take this laying down, apparently, right? They had violent outbursts against Christians. You know, to tell you the truth, uh, there's very little of that uh, outright violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, paganism was in a pretty moribund state at this point. Okay. The uh, uh, this is proved, but you know, one of the great lies is that the only reason the Roman Empire started turning Christian was to please Constantine. Well, Constantine's second successor, who was the Emperor Julian, uh, went back to paganism. Right, right. Julian the Apostate. That's right. So if uh, uh, if the people of the empire only converted to Christianity to please Constantine, then surely they would have converted back to the traditional religion of Rome to please Julian. I thought there had been some riots of pagans. You know, to tell you the truth, most of the rioting that happens in this age, now a little bit later in the time of Theodosius, there's actual suppression of paganism, the closing of temples and oh, other things like okay. that. That takes place after this story is over. This, this is... Uh, uh, Constantine had been dead for 40 years or so by that time. Um, so, yes, at that point, there's, there's pagan uh, uprising, and et cetera. But all, they, the people who are unhappy with what's going on channeled almost all of their effort into sponsorship of Arianism during the time we're actually talking about. Rob, thank you so much. Uh, we'd love to give you a call again because these moments in history we like to remember, and we'd love to have you on as a storyteller in the future. 
that sounds great. Well, anytime, just give me a call. All right. Rod Bennett, The Apostasy That Wasn't is the name of the book.